Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, we're in chapter 2. Last week we studied the first six verses in this chapter, and the title of our study was Bold in God. Paul repeatedly exhibited a fearless boldness, and particularly in the face of life-threatening opposition. There is much for us to learn from him and from Scripture regarding boldness. And today we're going to look at the next uh, seven, uh, verses 7 to 12 with the title of our study being Gentle Boldness. That is an interesting and an infrequent combination of words, gentle boldness. But it's where we see Paul taking us in these next six verses. Now, as we noted last week, we do need to be clear on a few things because our definitions of boldness are often not what Scripture is teaching. Boldness is not being the loudest one in the room. Boldness is not permission to be in your face, etc., etc. Far from it. The boldness that we saw was a humble, obedient, absolute confidence in God and in His message, in His power, His sovereignty over the affairs of men, etc. And we also need to be clear this week that Paul is not now backpedaling from what he said in the prior six verses. This point of gentleness is actually a continuation of the first several verses. Paul continues to explain, I was bold, and here's how I was bold. There is no doubt that boldness is desperately needed among God's people, but the same is true of gentleness. So I pose this question to you and to me this morning. Are you and I confident enough in Christ and His Word, strong enough in Him, bold enough in God to be gentle? Gentleness is one of the characteristics that should define every believer, regardless of their position, their authority, their age, their gender, our demeanor, our actions, the way we speak our words should be distinctly marked by gentleness. Yes, of course, there's a time for us to be very firm, a time for us to trumpet the truth, a time to move with great force, etc. But those times are not as often as we like to think. Matter of fact, we see in the Gospels that one of the most remarkable of all Jesus' qualities was His gentleness, His meekness, his compassion. This is hard for us to fathom. He was God, for heaven's sake, right? He is the one who spoke the universe into existence. That tells us volumes of his authority. He's speaking of the authority of the word this morning in Sunday school. We think of a centurion. His authority is exhibited in his ability to say something, and it happens. Well, Jesus was the one who spoke the universe into existence. He had the power and the authority to call down 10,000 angels at will. He saw all sin, and he knew every evil motive. He even knew that his own people, the Jews, were soon to crucify him, and yet... He often conducted himself as a gentle man. 
May some of that rub off on us today as we study God's Word. Listen to what Paul says in verses 7 to 12. But we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." These are the amazing words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless your word in our minds and hearts today. Give us the understanding that only you can give. Give us the grace that only you give to honor the word. Indeed, this calling to walk worthy of God, that is only going to happen by your spirit and by your might. So that is what we pray for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at a number of bold lessons from this chapter, and today we're going to look at an incredible collection of gentle lessons. If you would have counted as I read those verses a minute ago, you would have noticed that just between verses 7 and 12, there are right around 19 attitudes and behaviors of the gentle gospel messenger. They are packed in there, and they are all worth emulating. So let's walk through them and learn. Beginning in verse 7, Paul says, But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Paul begins this portion of his defense of his ministry by likening his behavior toward the believers to not just that of a mother, but a nursing mother, the mother of an infant. Right out the gate here, by virtue of his example, Paul has raised the bar for how we should serve and teach one another. Matter of fact, he's raised this bar almost out of sight. Can you think of a more delicate, soft, caring, compassionate, treasured relationship than that of a mother and her newborn. Come on, Paul, that's not even fair to raise the bar to that level like that for us. Of course, this speaks volumes to me because we have a nursing baby in our house, and this speaks even more to the stigters, the parents of our youngest discovery attendee who is barely a week and a half old. Paul says, that is how we treated you. He uses words like tender and caring. We know that this refers to a nurturing and a cherished way of treating others. Treating them not just sensitively, but we're, and not only to avoid hurting them, but to avoid causing even the slightest discomfort 
You know how these moms are with their newborns. I marvel at how tenderly Ruth cares for our baby Grace. Every time a whimper comes from across the room, Ruth jumps to that baby's care. Of course, you know what I'm thinking. Let her cry. It's good for her lungs. But mama is much better than that. Paul says, we did way better than you dads in how we cared for the church family. We fed you from the beginning. We gently helped you grow when you needed it most. He also states at the start of the verse that he proved his gentleness to the believers. Now, I've been kind and gentle before. You've been kind and gentle before. But that does not necessarily mean that we are a gentle and kind person. Paul says we prove to be gentle among you. Their gentleness was not a once-off action, but rather a consistent behavior, a consistent demeanor. It was exemplified many times to many people. He says, we proved our gentle attitude towards you. I dare say that many a church conflict and many a church offense would totally be avoided on this point alone. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you. As we read these verses, we're going to see that Paul is layering on the qualities of gentleness. He says, we had a fond affection for you. He's pointing out that this relationship was personal. The friendship was deep. You don't need me to tell you that it is very possible and very easy to have some of the shallowest relationships in the church. We smile. Hello. We smile. Goodbye. Potentially for years on end. Paul would have none of that. He said, we have so fond an affection for you, so deep a friendship that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. When I started back in January, studying through the book of 1 Thessalonians for my seminary class, this verse jumped out off the page and it grabbed hold of me. Paul said, our mission was not just to impart truth, but to share our own lives with you. Stop and let that sink in. That is true Christianity right there. If we could put all of the Christian mission into a nutshell, perhaps it would be this verse. I could just hear God saying, Chris, what you do in the pulpit is only part of your ministry. Sunday school teachers, what you do in the classroom is only part of it. Parents, you're teaching your children what is right is only part of your calling. We all have to not only impart truth, but our own lives as well. This is not just a truth-giving calling. It is a life-giving calling. We must treasure people, not just 
the truth. This is such a staggering definition of true Christianity and behavior. We have to appreciate how Paul said, our own lives. I have to think that he emphasized the own because he knows how easy it is to teach the truth and then expect somebody else to go do the grunt work, the sacrificing, the sacrificial day in and day out labor of loving others. This would be a pastor who preaches and then expects the church staff to go get it all done. A dad who does some teaching in the home and then expects the mother to do all the sacrificing. Paul says, no, we shared our own lives because you had become very dear to us. There's another layer right there, very dear to us. It is worth pausing for just a moment and each of us sincerely asking ourselves, is my church family very dear to me? Do I have a fond affection for them? And if not, why not? Shouldn't it be that way? I mean, let's be, let's be honest with each other. Isn't that the kind of church that we all want to be a part of? When we were last visiting churches looking for a church family, isn't that something we were seriously hoping for? A place I can connect. A place where the people will know me and I will know them, etc. And I have to be quick to say how blessed and encouraged I am on this very point. I've watched Mark and Nancy serve in this church family for the past 15 years or so, and I've come to realize how dearly they love each of you. And I've also seen how dearly you love them. I'm very blessed to say that God is also endearing this church family to Ruth and to me. But one of the great blessings in this is that I also hear so many of you saying the same thing. I cannot count the number of times recently I have heard people say, I love this church family so much. I don't know what I'd do without this church family. That's the way it should be, more and more. But Paul has even more layers of gentleness here. He said, we were well pleased to do this. We delighted in sharing our lives with you. It gave us joy. It gave us satisfaction. We smiled upon it. This is something we wanted to do. This is something we joyfully, willingly did. Of course, this is in stark contrast to the I'll do it because nobody else will mindset. Or I'll do it because I know I have to. I know it's right, so I guess I'll do it. We know that there is no joy in that approach to serving and loving one another. That's no approach to parenting. The mentality of disgruntled obligation will never yield a very dear-to-us relationship, not even one. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, For you recall, brethren, Again, that's Paul reinforcing his statements and his claims throughout this chapter. He says, you know, you remember, God is our witness. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. That's not only the hard work, the toil, the labor, but the suffering and the difficulty that came with it as well. 
That's Paul saying we not only served you, but we paid a heavy price to do it. He goes on to say, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. When we ponder what Paul just said in that verse, even at face value, we recognize how countercultural those words are. Not to be a burden to any of you. That goes so against the consumerist, what can I get out of this church mentality? Of course, there is benefit to be found in the, in the house and in the family of God. Of course, Paul received blessings from the Thessalonians. He received love and blessings everywhere he went. But that's not what he was after. And it's not what we should be after in the house and family of God either. Why did Paul labor and endure hardship day and night? It wasn't to get something. The verse says, so as not to be a burden to any of you. It was to give something. Paul understood well the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. What are you looking for in a church? Oh, I'm just looking for a place where I won't be a burden to anyone. A place where I can labor and suffer night and day for the sake of the gospel. What planet are you from, right? We don't hear those words very often. How awesome, though, to have a body of believers who understand and cling to the truth that I am here not to get as much as I can, but to do all I can to serve and give and advance the gospel and its life-changing power. This was the pillar of truth that Paul taught in Romans chapter 14. And in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he said in chapter 9 verse 12, we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And in verse 23, he said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. No obstacles, no stumbling blocks. This mindset is not complicated. We see that it's actually a very powerful, gentle boldness at work. Verse 10, you are witness and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly. That time doesn't afford us to do a long word study here, but we get the point of the repetition. The Christian life demands innocent and right behavior. We are called to ongoing and increased sanctification. If we are to be ambassadors of Christ, if we are to be His witnesses, good laborers in His harvest, His messengers, we must also live out the holiness and righteousness of God. There must be a daily, ongoing cleansing of impure and deceitful tendencies so we can boldly and gently speak the truth into the lives of those around us. The truth is, if we serve God and speak His Word to others, we can count on opposition. We will be accused of just about every wrong motive and action under the sun. It is up to us to make the accusations false. 
when Paul was falsely accused here of both his selfish motives and his deceitful tactics, he was able to boldly say, you know that it is not true. I know that it is not true. God knows that it is not true. As we studied last week, we know the gospel is perfect. But what about us? What about our behavior at home and in the church and in the workplace, etc.? Paul says, I was devout, upright, and blameless in the way I behaved toward you. No error, no impurity, no deceit, as we studied last week. And I love how Paul points out one of the purposes for Christian living in this phrase in two key words, devout, upright, and blameless toward you. We have to appreciate the toward you factor that he emphasizes here. As Christians, there is a massive tendency to pursue the virtues of holiness and sanctification largely for oneself, personal sanctification. But as we see emphasized repeatedly in this chapter, the virtues are most certainly meant to be developed for others as well, perhaps even primarily for the benefit of others. Notice how Paul again turns outward in verse 11. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. Three key words. We have the exhorting. That's the teaching, the explaining, the application of biblical truth. I think of Willie in his high school math class. Here's what the textbook says. Let me try to help you understand it. Let me help you, let me explain it to you. That would be the exhortation. Second, Paul mentions the encouraging. Of course, that's the instilling of courage in the one who has received and heard the truth. Helping them to overcome their fears. Helping them to visualize success. Helping them find strength by pointing them to the unfailing strength of God. Thirdly, Paul mentions imploring. This is the charge, as some of your Bible versions read. It's the earnestly begging, the beseeching, the command to follow through. This is where urgency and seriousness are communicated. We help the individual to see the critical nature of what was just taught and explained. This is where we do all we can to press and to persuade others in light of the eternal life and death nature of the truths that pour so freely out of the Word of God. In one brief sentence here, Paul has taught us three aspects of excellent, complete teaching. The exhorting, the encouraging, the imploring. I like to look at these three this way. How you do it, you can do it, you must do it. Exhort, encourage, implore. All three are critical. Consider for just a moment the imbalances in these or the ramifications of having imbalance in these. We all know how easy it is to exhort but fail to encourage. I hate to say it, but dads are good at that. 
at least I am. Matter of fact, I have no trouble at all going straight from the exhortation to the charge, the command. And of course, that's when Ruth steps in and does the encouraging. Matter of fact, you can only imagine how it felt two days ago when I was just about done with my sermon prep. And Ruth said to me, in the moment of a particular situation, Chris, you have to encourage the children. Yeah, it seems like I heard that somewhere before. Here's another imbalance that I fear is trending in the church culture today. Exhort, encourage. And that's it. No charge. Don't get pushy. Keep it sweet. Keep it encouraging. Keep it comfortable. But don't step on my toes or I'll what? Shop for another church. Christian friends, Paul was a role model of this aspect of imploring, of urging, of pressing and pushing, of driving believers and lifting them, helping lift them to the next level of spiritual strength and maturity. That confidence, that boldness came because he knew he wasn't peddling his own ideas. The inerrant, inspired, all-sufficient truth of God was being proclaimed. We cannot afford to leave off the imploring, the charge, the mandate. This is where Paul stands up like a man and gives the order. If Judah Helen were here, I would love to ask him, how common is the giving of orders in the Marines? The charge, the command, or was it just all encouraging in boot camp? Here's another imbalance, very little exhortation, that's the teaching, and lots of encouragement. You can do it. God made you so wonderful. You are beautiful. Yes, but what did Paul say? I didn't flatter you once. So let's not confuse flattery with encouragement. But even still, for some, it's easy to overdo the, the encouragement at the expense of the exhortation, the labor of the exhortation. I'm praying for you. Hang in there. Yes, but can you give me some Bible words of guidance and hope too? Can you sit down with me and help me see my suffering from God's perspective? Can you share testimony of how God proved himself to you? so that I can lean on your faith during my weakness. Without the exhortation, the clear, unadulterated teaching of truth, what value is there in the encouraging and imploring? Don't you love the wisdom of the Word of God? Three words stated so simply that teach us the threefold nature of effective, complete teaching, ministry. This is so much more powerful when we stop and ponder each word rather than gloss over the text so quickly. Sometimes we just have to slow down and meditate on why God put each word in the text like He did. What incredible instruction we receive right here in this short phrase. So how does Paul wrap up this explanation and defense 
of his personal ministry of the gospel? How does he say that he boldly spoke the truth to others as a father would his own children? Paul, I, I like to think of it this way, Paul took the gentle, tender, caring strengths of a mother and he combined them with the instructive, encouraging, imploring strengths of the father and he put both into practice. This reminds us fathers that we have much we can learn from the mothers. And mothers, you have much to learn from the fathers. God has gifted both men and women in such wonderful ways. Paul says, I shared the gospel with you as a father would his own children. The first thing that comes to my mind as a father is my tremendous sense of responsibility and long-term responsibility at that. Fatherhood, as you know, is not a six-month commitment. It is a generational commitment. As the grandfathers in here would testify, it still hasn't ended. We still serve and love and exhort, encourage, and implore our children. This is a tremendous challenge to us as a church family, to have a long-term vision for caring and instructing and equipping and sending out each other to be the people that God wants us to be in our homes and in our communities. That kind of long-term vision and commitment will undoubtedly make a massive difference in our effectiveness and in the depth of our relationships with each other. Do we as adults look at the other children in this church and say, Lord, help me to be here for them as they grow through their teens and into adulthood? Lord, help me to be here should you lead. Help me to be here with this church family 20 years from now, 30, 40 if you would give them to me. I fear that this vision for long-term relationships in churches is waning. It is not a common thing. People are looking out for themselves primarily. Oh, that God would give us a passion for a father-like commitment to the believers He has brought around us. If God has called you and me to this church family, let us be here for the long haul, should He lead. It's that type of commitment that makes a difference in relationships. What amazing guiding truths in these few verses for us to live by. If we step back now and look just at verses 7 to 11, not, not even to mention the prior six as well, which all flow into this also, but even just these five verses, we see that God has used Scripture to give us an excellent role model for sharing the Bible and our faith with others. This applies not only to preachers, but to parents, to believers who are ministering to one another, yes, to the Sunday school teachers, the Bible study leaders, but also to the older siblings who have younger siblings that they can instruct and encourage and challenge. 
Everyone has much to learn from the overflowing fountain of wisdom and instruction in these few verses. But I'd like us to wrap up with a most important observation here. Everything in chapter 2 culminates in verse 12. Paul says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. We cannot afford to miss the gravity of the so that in verse 12. An alarm or a yellow blinking light should go off in our minds every time in Scripture we come across a so that. Why did Paul do everything mentioned in the prior 11 verses? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God Himself. Paul labors, he suffers, he's bold, he's gentle, he loves, he treasures, he behaves most uprightly and blamelessly, etc., for one grand purpose. And that is so that we would walk worthy of God. All of the verses, 1 through 11, point to verse 12. Christian friend, beware the danger and the damage that comes from doing verses 1 through 11 apart from verse 12. Paul knew full well that it was possible to teach the truth in such a way that it builds up one's own pride. He knew full well that it is possible for parents to parent in such a manner that it builds up their pride. He knew full well that it was possible to spread the gospel for personal gain, to easily benefit and even become wealthy off of it. He knew how easy it would be to flatter others in the church for self-glory, and to earn friends and respect. If we do all of these first 11 verses, but do not do them with the grand purpose of walking worthy of God and encouraging others to walk worthy of God, then we have accomplished nothing. We have to appreciate the parallel to this that Paul gives in what chapter of 1 Corinthians? 13, where he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy I, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, that's the martyr's death, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Friends, if we strive to live moral lives and do what's right and follow these first 11 verses for any reason than honoring the God who saved us, then I fear that our efforts will turn up vain. Or worse yet, they will yield the fruits of unrighteousness that Paul himself had to so carefully avoid. If he had to be careful, having experienced the grace of God to such magnificent levels, how much more each of us? Praise God that His grace is sufficient. 
we are called to walk worthy of God Himself. That's Paul simply saying, you're a Christian, live like it. Know what the Bible says, honor it. Identify the godly heart attitudes, honor them. Find the commands, obey them. Let the Holy Spirit, what o- Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do to change you, guide you, and empower you for your own personal growth and the work of the ministry. And do all that for the sheer honor and worthiness of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Think about that last phrase there. There is so much meaning packed into that. We could easily have a sermon series on being called into the kingdom of God, being called into the glory of God. Consider just for a moment being called into God's kingdom. That teaches us and reminds us that we are going to see God soon. Live like it. He's making us honored citizens of His own heavenly kingdom. Live worthy of it. Represent Him well. It's interesting that in this verse we are reminded that we did not deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't even ask for it. He called us. Honor it by the way we live, Paul says. And if that wasn't enough, this is is the same one true living God who also can we even begin to wrap our minds around this, calls us into His own glory. He doesn't just say, observe my glory. He says, come experience it. Come into it. The wonder, the splendor, the brilliance and magnificence of who He is His holiness and His righteousness, His purity, His love, He calls us into it. If that privilege is ours, we must live worthy of it. Why wouldn't we walk worthy of the God who saves us? In very simple terms, I would suggest it's because we forget. We take our eyes off Christ and we ponder the temporal, dismal, deceitful pleasures of this world. And by setting our eyes on them, our hearts soon follow. When we lose sight of God, we lose heart of God. But why lose sight and heart when we don't have to? Paul says, I did everything in these first 11 verses so that you would... Walk worthy of God. Church family, I have two requests of you and me from this text today. Two charges. I implore us, number one, to join forces and both personally and corporately purpose to walk worthy of God. More worthy than yesterday. More worthy than last month last year. And secondly, I challenge us to pick up the baton that Paul ran so well with and let us also run well while there is time. 
The calling is now ours to be the messengers of the gospel. You know this. To be bold, to be gentle, to teach the word without error, impurity, or deceit, to labor and endure hardships so as not to be a burden to each other, to impart not just biblical truth, but our own lives as well, so that others would have the privilege of walking worthy of God who calls them into His own kingdom and glory. As the men come to serve uh, communion, it's worth noting that Paul wasn't the first to impart his life so that others could receive the good news. Who did it first? Jesus Christ. He did it first. We are so blessed and so overwhelmed by the love of God through Christ Jesus in us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, verses 16 through 18. If you're a follower of Christ then this morning, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's table with us in a moment. We do this to remember the cross, the price that the innocent, holy Son of God willingly, for the joy set before Him, suffered and paid for us. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 says, But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That is Jesus. By His stripes, we are healed. You know that there is no saving power in the bread and the juice here. That all happened at the cross and in the resurrection. Are you looking forward to Easter? How our hearts long for that day of celebration. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an amazing privilege that we get to proclaim your death. We get to testify, witness the saving power of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much that you came, you died on our behalf.
you took our punishment on the cross. Lord, I pray that if there is one here who has not believed and understood the saving power of Jesus, that he forgives sin fully, eternally, once for all. Oh, Lord, grant them understanding and repentance today. For those of us who have understood and have experienced, oh, Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of you, knowing that you have called us into your own kingdom and glory. Let these things press us to greater sanctification. Lord, let them press us to an ongoing spirit of repentance and joy in Christ. We love you and we thank you for what you have done for us. Indeed, Lord, it is you alone who enables us to walk in a manner worthy of God himself. Be blessed as we take this cup and bread now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.